Hi, Dr. Zink. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, sorry I was late. I Totally fine. I know you have such a busy schedule, so I appreciate you taking the time to even speak with me. But before we get started, I always forget to do this, and then I have to grab a screen grab of you mid-laugh or something. So could, would you mind posing for a photo so we can put it on the... It's <laughs> my hair. Perfect. Great, okay. From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm Atme producer Riley Taylor, recording this on my iPhone in my closet since the Atme studio is closed for the time being. On December 18th, 2020, Alaska's chief medical officer, Dr. Ann Zink, received her first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine just days after it arrived in the state. According to the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, as of January 12th, over 29,000 Alaskans have received their first dose and nearly 6,000 have finished the series of vaccinations. In this episode, Atme producer Danielle Duclos talks with Dr. Zink about the impacts of the pandemic on Alaskan communities, the new rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine, and some of the potential side effects. Dr. Zink is hopeful that this vaccine will save lives and help curb the spread of the virus. They spoke over Zoom on January 6th, 2021. go ahead and get started. Um, how was your holiday? <laughs> it was good. You know, um, it was uh, nice and very quiet. Um, but uh, yeah, just um, Alaska beautiful, but then we're in the process of vaccine rollout. So nothing like rolling out two super complex vaccines over the holiday weekend in the middle of uh, Alaska in the winter. So there's yeah, been some yeah, challenges yeah. with that, but uh, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> So speaking of the vaccine, I know you got vaccinated um, a couple of weeks ago. Do you want to kind of talk about that experience and what that was like? Yeah, um, I got vaccinated as part of my job where I'm seeing patients clinically as a healthcare provider. So my hospital was like, it's your turn, time to get vaccinated. So I was like, okay. <laughs> um, there are two vaccines out, both the Pfizer and Moderna. It's not really a choice on which one you get. It just depends on um, what availability and supplies. And so they basically were like, we're getting Pfizer at these dates. And if you can get vaccinated, that'd be great. Uh, so I was honored to be able to have the opportunity. I really did not care which one I got and was fine with either one. And um, went in, I guess it was, it was my birthday. It was Friday uh, evening uh, when I went and got vaccinated. One of the unit secretaries who I've worked with in a long time in the hospital asked me to vaccinate her. Uh, and so that was a huge honor. We've, we've had crazy experiences in the emergency department together. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are exposed to COVID, house cleaners and unit secretaries, nurses, a lot of people that we um, may not think of in the same sort of way. Um, and she's right in the middle of it with us. And so it was great to, to see that she uh, got protected as well. So that was pretty emotional. She's lost some good friends to COVID and, um, yeah, it, you know, her sharing her experience and, um, I don't know, it kind of feels like a family in the ED. So it was, it was actually really nice to be there with kind of other family, all kind of protecting each other. Um, I think it was more emotional than a lot of people expected. I remember our hospital CEO saying, I didn't expect it to be this emotional. Um, and I think it's because 
healthcare providers on the front lines just see day after day what this disease does to you and uh, have been, you know, fearful for their life for months and didn't have PPE. And it's been scary. Uh, it's been hard. I remember when this pandemic first started and looking around my group and not knowing if we'd all live through this and not knowing if the nurses would live through this. And to be at the point, I'll get emotional talking about it now, but to get at the point where uh, everyone in my group got vaccinated, like, you know, all, every single one was like, absolutely the first day it's available, I'm up. But we see it every day. And to, um, I don't know, I really thought we were gonna lose some of our providers um, in this, this kind of family of mine in the emergency department, but we haven't and they all got to get vaccinated. So that was great. The larger family of Alaska, you know, hasn't been so lucky. Um, you know, we've lost Alaskans and not everyone's been protected. And um, it's really amazing to be at this point where we have a vaccine, not only is available, but it looks so efficacious. It, you know, it works so much better than the flu vaccine and lots of other vaccines out there. I think one of my big fears was a vaccine that would roll out um, that wouldn't be that good or um, would be maybe will help a little bit and that would be better than nothing. But it's a far cry from what's happened. I mean, this was kind of the best case scenario in some ways for a vaccine to have it be this good. So um, I kind of didn't allow myself to dream or wish it would be this good. And so I think there was a lot of, um, honestly, emotion when we got vaccinated, both to be at that point that it was so good and um, to be able to offer another line of protection to people who've been fighting this fight for a long time. Yeah, you guys have certainly been through a lot and you do see you know, a lot more than the average citizen does when it comes to COVID and how it really impacts people. Um, and so have you gotten your second dose yet or are you still waiting on that? Wait, so I have my sticker right here on my computer that says, uh, these are all the Alaska stickers that we made that were kind of similar to the voting ones. And so it says stay safe. And then uh, my next dose it will be on the 8th of January. So coming up and so plan my schedule around it and it sits here on my computer. Uh, screen reminding me when my next one is. And so I'll get that on Friday and see how it goes. And uh, we'll see, you know, definitely the, the data shows that people have a little bit more side effects um, from the second dose and the first dose. And I've been hearing reports from other colleagues who've gotten their second dose. They felt a little bit more sore. They didn't feel as well. I had really minimal effects from the first one. Um, I didn't really hardly feel it go in. And then that night, like my whole arm felt warm. Like it was getting like an infection. Like it just all felt warm. Um, and I was like, well, I'm going to be sore after this. I don't know how this is going to go. But then I woke up the next morning and it was totally gone. And I, that was, that was the entire extent of what I experienced. I went biking the next day. I felt fine. My arm was honestly less sore than from a flu shot normally. And, um, that's all I experienced. So we'll see what the second one looks like, but that was my experience with the first. Good, good. So actually, do you want to talk a little bit about how that is actually typical of vaccinations um, and how this isn't really that different from another vaccination that someone might have already had in their life or a flu vaccine? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that, I don't know, I think sometimes we think like vaccines are some magical cape that won't, you know, impact you, but will suddenly protect you 100%. But what they are is they're like, um, you know, the shortcut to your body being able to create a good immune response system. And it needs to create an immune response system. That's the whole purpose of a vaccine is to teach your body what this, you know, invader looks like. So it's set and ready to go, but your body needs to respond. And so your body may respond locally as those cells are picking up that vaccine. They're processing that mRNA. They're, they're showing that, that um, spike protein. And then your body sees that as an invader and actually goes and attacks those cells and builds up a whole immune response. So that immune response um, needs to happen for the vaccine to work. 
Uh, and so that includes, you know, sore arm, lymph nodes can be sore, people can get fevers, they can feel just really run down and tired. And that's just because your body's like, hey, give me some space. I got to build an immune response here. I'm busy. <laughs> like, can you just chill so I can go do this? Um, and that's, that's normal and that's healthy. And that is a completely normal reaction. There's no evidence that uh, um, the sore you are, or you know, if you felt miserable that you're building a better response, it just depends on how your body responds to it in general. So I was not worried that I did not have like a really strong response. I wasn't like, oh man, you know, I, I got a placebo there. I think the other thing that's kind of crazy just about uh, the mind and body and, and life is that you inject people with anything, a needle with just normal saline, some people get swelling, some people get flushed, some people get, I mean, people will sometimes get hives just from when they're anxious or when they're hot or when they're cold. Um, and so all of those reactions can happen as well with placebo as well as vaccine. So not only do we expect some degree of immune response, but we expect some degree of flushing or soreness or you know, not feeling great simply just from the emotional release or just having an injection or like the placebo effect. So if you look at the data, both the placebo group and the vaccine group, many of them had reactions to some degree. It's just that the vaccine group had slightly more soreness, redness, you know, not feeling great the next couple of days. And that's how we kind of separate out what's baseline versus what's really a result of the, the injection itself and the vaccine itself. Wow, that's crazy that people like get a reaction regardless um, sometimes if they've had the real vaccine or not. Um, so you talked about kind of how you felt physically. How are you feeling mentally? Do you feel safer? Do you feel, is there like a weight lifted off of you or are you still <laughs> pretty, how do you feel? <laughs> no, I do feel a lot safer. Um, you know, that week when we were rolling out vaccines uh, was just an emotional week in general. I don't know. I used to be I was never a great rock climber, but I used to do some rock climbing and I keep thinking of it as like that we were like leading, like you were out above your anchors when you were in the emergency department or when we we're just out and about, like, you're like, okay, I'm holding on, I've got my mask, but I don't have an, I don't have another redundant source of protection. Like I've got my own immune system. I've got distance. I've got hand washing. I've got mask, but that feels, it's still fairly exposed. There's still a chance. And I had a very similar sense when I got vaccinated to kind of like getting to an anchor or having like another rope. Like you're just like, oh, I'm clipped in now. Like things can still happen. You know, um, it's not perfect. Um, we do still see people get COVID even if they've gotten the vaccine, but the serious illness uh, is not there. And just like climbing and you were to fall, if you are on a top rope, your fall is not gonna have a serious consequence. And so it feels very similar in that sense. That it just feels like there's a redundancy to the protection now that feels incredibly relieving. Um, and it was surprising there were even things too. I was like, you know, we talk a lot about economy and what's happened in the rest of it. You know, like to me sound very vague or selfish, but I was like, I really can't wait for a haircut. Like, you know, like I'm like, I've not gotten a haircut this pandemic, like I need a haircut. But there have been choices that I have made to keep myself safe. Um, and I will absolutely wear masks. We don't understand the role of transmission and that. But on the other hand, the kind of risk benefit analysis changes when you're like, okay, um, I'm willing to do this. So I really think as people get vaccinated, that's going to help economy uh, as well as people feel more comfortable kind of going out in the world and, and doing things because they have that extra sense of protection. And I think the negative space of people not wanting to intermix or wanting to go is hard to calculate, but it's really real. 
And I think that that has also really impacted um, economies and businesses overall. So I'm excited for people to get vaccinated so that they can be protected. So our hospital capacity could be there. And so our economy can recover and kids can go to school and all those things. Like those are all just so important. So there's so many more things than just the, the health protection that I think the vaccine will be too as well. Yeah, definitely. It's we're, we've made it. We're getting there. Um. We're getting there. We're yeah. It's been a long year. It's crazy though. I learned the other day that it was 83 days from the time the genetic sequencing of the, this virus was posted online to the first vaccine administered in a human. 83 days. Like it's incredible to me. That is and, very impressive. Isn't that cool? Um, and part of it is these platforms were designed to be super fast. So like the Pfizer one, you know, it was designed to be able to even look at tumors so that you could take um, the kind of the specific screen or the specific marker for a tumor and make a vaccine to it. And you could be very specific to a person and make it super quickly. So you could give that vaccine as a way to treat uh, cancers. Um, and so it was designed to be fast. It was designed uh, to not require cells or growth or culture. It has no live virus in it. It has no dead virus in it. It's essentially the protein um, that is a little strip of message, this messenger RNA that is wrapped in a little fat particle suspended in some sugars and salts. And basically that little fat particle is, it allows it to enter your cell and then it enters your cell and the mRNA is transcribed on a ribosome, which is kind of like the manufacturing part of the cell. It doesn't enter the DNA. It does not enter the nucleus. It does not mix with our DNA. <laughs> and then your body expresses that spike protein and then you build this immune response to it. And then in your immune response, you essentially destroy the mRNA and the cells that had it. So it's kind of a very, uh, lim it, it self limits very quickly, but then your body has that immune response, both uh, your immediate immune response, your antibodies, as well as your innate immune response, um, which is more like your long-term memory so that um, you, you know how to respond to it when you're exposed to it later. Wow, thank you for going over all the signs of it. I feel like people just talk about the vaccine and that that's really great to get kind of that breakdown of how it actually works in the body. Um, so we had the first round of vaccines, which went to like nursing home residents and healthcare workers. Who's, who's gonna be in our second round? Do we know that yet? Well, today at noon, 65 and older opens up. Uh, so yeah, we're moving fast down through the tiers. We definitely haven't gotten through everyone in each one of the tiers. Um, but we really just want vaccines and arms as quickly as possible. So we're just trying to move through the tiers as quickly as possible as we continue to do outreach and education. So since this is a teen media, you guys are super good at computers. Reach out to your grandma <laughs> and help them with the process <laughs> because they're a little, there's been some concerns about like how challenging that could be. And it is, it's not a super simple process. Um, we are putting in new uh, um, appointments all the time. So if you go in and there's not an appointment there, just keep checking back um, because there will be more appointments. Some of our communities are doing kind of mass dispensing. Uh, and if you have a, you know, an elder in your life who you love and they can't maybe drive to a pharmacy or a primary care doc to do it, and you can't get there, maybe they're completely homebound. There's even some programs to like go to houses to vaccinate um, as well. So you can call your local public health nurse to help coordinate that. Um, so there's a lot of options, but if you, if our younger generation can help our older generation get vaccinated over the next couple of weeks, be it driving them there, helping them schedule an appointment, reassuring them that if there is an appointment will come, the website is covidvax.alaska.gov. And we just really encourage everyone to go to that website because it will tell you who's up next and who's eligible. And then it will take you to a map where you can see what's around. 
We've seen groups take parts of our website separately and send them around via email, but those don't have all the sites and they don't have the eligibility. Um, so just covidvax.alaska.gov for all vaccine needs. Um, we update it all the time, go there. So that would be my ask for uh, the younger generation. Uh, we really need your help for the next couple of weeks <laughs> uh, to get neighbors and loved ones uh, who are over 65 scheduled to get vaccinated. Perfect. That's something that we can do, I think. I think it'd be we awesome. We can, you know, yeah. you can do that. You can call them. Uh, it'd be great. We really, I think we're going to need a lot of a lot of ambassadors here in the next couple of weeks to, to connect them to vaccine. And they're the ones who have been hit the hardest by it. Their mortality is the highest. Many have just been very terrified about the disease and don't want to go out. And um, I'm just so excited that we are at a point that we can offer them vaccine. And then when they make their appointment and they go get vaccinated, they're asked to schedule their next one at the same time. They'll get a sticker, but making sure they know that second one, the prep mod site has an ability to send text reminders and things like that. But um, we are so much stronger when we're together. So if we can uh, all work together to help support this next tier or phase, we'll get through it faster. We'll get those who are most vulnerable protected quicker and we'll keep moving through vaccine. And so though we do have a vaccine, that doesn't mean that this is over yet. So <laughs> are some of the, are the same rules of mask wearing, limiting travel, social distancing, all of that still in place, even if you do have the vaccine? That's a really great question. So at this point, yes. Um, like I said, there is a little bit more protection. So, you know, like I'm contemplating getting my hair cut. Like there's a little bit more like, okay, we don't fully understand the role of transmission after vaccination. So that is an area, early data from like the Moderna and the AstraZeneca trials show that it probably does decrease transmission, but we don't have that for the Pfizer. So at this point, we're still saying distance and mask. We're also at such a point with such early vaccination uh, that we have lots of people who aren't vaccinated as of yet. So as of now, yes. Um, but the hope is that when we understand more on the role of transmission with it, that hopefully it will protect us against transmission as well. So I wouldn't accidentally spread it to others. Um, and so just like in getting my haircut, having you know a mask when I'm doing it in case there's a chance I'm an asymptomatic carrier, even post-vaccine and could spread it to others, having that mask is still gonna be important until we have that data. Regarding small groups and traveling and things like that, that all has to do with transmission as well. And so until we understand that better. Um, the other thing is there's these uh, new variants that we're seeing both um, out of the United Kingdom as well as South Africa. And now we're seeing them quite a bit in, in areas like Southern California and Arizona that's surging a lot right now. And it looks like that uh, strain does move more easily from person to person. And while it doesn't cause more severe disease from what we can see right now, when a virus moves more quickly, and honestly kills more people just because it, more people are exposed to it. It's just how the way the numbers work out because disease is kind of linear. Um, so if I get it and if I get sick, that's a linear progression versus the virus spreading, that's exponential um, unless we take these mitigation. We've been doing a lot of sequencing in the state. We have not found this variant in the state as of yet. Um, it makes us nervous. And so with that travel, we really want people to, this is a more important time than ever to test prior to travel stay home for you know seven days or so after travel and get a test near the end of travel that five to seven days after travel as well, just to make sure you didn't accidentally pick up that strain and uh, carry it uh, to a new community and, and start it spreading. So um, uh, yeah, all those things are still there. Uh, you know, I think as the population becomes more protected with more vaccine, we have a better understanding of transmission. Those things too will change, um, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, speaking of the new strain that's cropping up, what does that mean in terms of the vaccine? And, you know, do we, are we going to have to start this whole process over again? Or, you know, what does that mean for us? That's a really great question. So um, it looks like the vaccine probably still works um, uh, either as well or nearly as well. 
One way I think about it is uh, the spike uh, protein, which this vaccine is targeted. Think of it like a tree and the vaccine and the variant is like a change on one of the branches on a tree. So it's concerning that it is, you know, on the thing that we're targeting, but it's like one small segment of it. So it still looks like the antibody fits well on that tree, even without that branch being exactly the same. Um, and so at this point, we still think the vaccine will be important. The big thing that it changes is the easier a disease spreads, the more coverage you need, the more people you need to get vaccinated to really get to this concept of herd immunity. And so if it spreads easier, it just means we need more people vaccinated, which means we need more vaccine and we need people to get vaccinated. Um, uh, you can have a very effective vaccine, which we do, um, or a very efficacious vaccine, which we do, but it's only as effective as how many people we can get it in arms of. And so we might be pushing more like 70 to 80% will need it if this becomes the dominant strain, which is high vaccine numbers. You know, we don't reach that for most other diseases. Um, so to get that many people vaccinated. And then the hard thing is too, there's whole groups of people we can't vaccinate um, right now because like kids aren't studied in. So <laughs> we automatically have a group of people who herd immunity, like we're not gonna reach it from that reason alone. Um, hopefully by the time we're getting to the kids, we have more data on kids and then can start to expand it. Um, there's another vaccine that will probably go to the FDA by the end of this month. That's a one dose vaccine on a different platform, a protein-based platform. Um, and so I think as we get more vaccine types out there, that will also help really speed up this process. So those are the main things that, that the mutation means, but it does look like it still, still works, which is good. But, you know, life is crazy and uh, we follow data and science and, uh, you know, this virus will likely continue to change as it has pressure from vaccination um, and uh, from it spreading around the world. So uh, we'll just have to keep watching it and see, but at this point we're still good. <laughs> That's good. That's good to hear. I'm glad it's not like, oh, we're back to square zero. <laughs> no, we're a long way from square zero. So that's really, really good. And even if it became like 90% effective versus 95, I mean, that matters in overall people getting sick and dying, but still that's way more than we were. I mean, I was hoping for about 50%. So yeah, I mean, like a flu vaccine, which saves, you know, thousands of lives every year is between 40 to 60% effective. Oh, wow. So this yeah. is like way above like a normal way above. you would get. Wow. Yeah. So there's other, like the measles vaccine is pretty similar to this one. And so when you get vaccinated, like measles goes away because it's really effective. But ones like the flu, it's, you know, it helps for sure, but it's, it's still not great. So this is, this is kind of an A plus vaccine when you look at both safety data as well as efficacy data, which again, I was going with C and above for efficacy. <laughs> like it helps a little, I'll go with it. But uh, uh, as long as it's safe, um, but and, and this looks like not only is it safe, but it's really, really efficacious, which is great. Yeah, that's amazing. So you, you're talking about herd immunity and you know, the, getting the majority of the population vaccinated in order for this to be eradicated. What, what does that timeline roughly look like? Are we talking a year out, two years out? And so we really get that grounded. <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, there's a couple different points that I think yeah, in that space. Um, one is like, when do we get it so vaccine is readily available so anyone who wants it can have it. And I think that's a little bit like the sun. I think right now it's cold and it's dark and it's winter and there's limited light and there's limited vaccine. Um, but just like spring equinox, it will get brighter and we'll, have, we'll be moving fast by then. And come summer solstice, I think it will be plentiful like the sun and people can get vaccinated. Will that be enough to get us to herd immunity? I don't know. I think that's going to depend a lot more on vaccine hesitancy um, than anything that has to do with actually having vaccine. And that's a real limitation um, because when you have uh, groups of people who don't get vaccinated, um, particularly if it decreases transmission, 
it just becomes harder to slow and it gives the virus a chance to continue to change and respond and to mutate uh, and spread and make people sick and ill. So we'll see on what the vaccine uptake looks like. And the other thing is we are in an amazingly interconnected world. And so, you know, to have this virus not spread from person to person, honestly, the world needs to be well protected and vaccinated. And that's going to be a lot longer off. Um, you know, I feel incredibly blessed that we live in a state right now where we are going door to door vaccinating elders in communities with no running water and sewer. And, you know, um, many places in the European Union haven't even started vaccinating yet. So we're just, um, we're really fortunate to be at this point to have vaccine, but it's gonna, we got a lot of people in this world <laughs> um, yeah. and we are all interconnected. So that to, for true world herd immunity, that's a ways off, but um, the state, I think we'll get there before then um, as long as uh, there isn't massive um, hesitation. I, I will say that like healthcare providers, you know, initially were saying 40 to 60% were interested in the vaccine, but when they started to see the data come out behind it, um, we're now seeing 80 to 90% be vaccinated. So we're seeing really high uptake um, amongst, if you're seeing, particularly with healthcare workers who see patients uh, who are getting sick from COVID, those groups are getting vaccinated in really, really high numbers right now, um, so which is good. Yeah, that actually leads me right into my next question. I know we kind of talked about the efficacy of the vaccine and the minimal side effects, but um, what would you say to someone or those who are you know, apprehensive about getting the vaccine for whatever reason, what would you, what reason, what things would you like them to know about it in order to encourage them to be vaccinated? Yeah, I would say, first of all, it's okay to be hesitant, right? Like it's an injection and, um, there's a lot of unknowns about COVID and the rest of it. And, um, I appreciate that. I would encourage people to talk to their primary care doctor or health provider about what that looks like for them. I would encourage them to look at kind of trusted sources. There's, an impressive amount of misinformation out there. Um, the common reasons that I hear for hesitation are one, this was rushed. And so I don't trust a process that's rushed. Um, and I would say a couple things to that. I would say this is building on decades of technology to get to this point. Uh, so mRNA vaccines have been around before. We've used them actually for Zika and Ebola. Um, those just weren't mass pandemics that needed a vaccine in the same sort of way. So, but that platform's been there, as I mentioned earlier, they've been there for cancer treatment. Um, you know, we don't question it when our phone becomes faster, but if you look at like the progression of technology for our computers and phones, when you build on previous technology, things move faster. And the same is true with vaccines. So that's one big thing about it. Two about the safety steps, nothing was skipped. Um, and so all the same, like I mentioned, 83 days after the sequencing, the first one was given, all the time we've been doing since then has been looking for safety and efficacy, right? Like, is this really safe? What does this look like? Do you do it this way? Do you do it that way? Like that's what the whole process has been and why it has taken a year to go from that, you know, first time to actually getting it in many people's arms is, is about safety and efficacy. Uh, the other thing about vaccines is really you see side effects and adverse reactions really within the first two months, just based on the way the immune system works. So if you're gonna see problems, you're gonna see it early within that. And all the people in the phase one and two trials, which were really looking at safety, all of that has continued through the six month, eight month phase. And part of the reason why these vaccines were not released right away uh, after phase three trials started is you wanna get all of phase three people through a minimum of two months to look at safety in a larger group, but then you also wanna look at efficacy. So safety is always cumulative. You're always looking at safety in all those groups. 
The other thing now, I haven't pulled up the numbers from this morning, but you know, we have over 4 million people vaccinated in the country. And we encourage people to log into a program called VSAFE, which you'll get when you log in. Super simple. You get like a text each day and it just asks you how you're feeling. And so the CDC is doing ongoing monitoring of the vaccines right now to look at safety uh, to make sure. So we have an incredible amount of information about the safety of them overall. So I would say that about the speed. Um, we, we trust it moving fast with other technologies. Um, and as long as safety steps aren't skipped and safety steps weren't skipped. So I think that that's important uh, to look at. There have been adverse reactions. We expect adverse reactions. Um, some of those are likely just kind of any sort of injection. Some are your immune system response. Um, and we've seen uh, particularly in anaphylaxis where people can become short of breath and flush a, a higher rate of that than we see like in influenza. There's actually a report coming out tomorrow um, on that. They've all been successfully treated uh, with epinephrine is the way to treat it. If I had a treatment uh, for COVID as easy as I do for the reaction to the vaccine, that would be amazing. You know, uh, it would, I would be simple. I would not be worried about COVID in the same sort of way. So I think we also need to put it into the risk of what's happening with COVID. We are losing two people a minute in this country right now to COVID-19. And that is huge. That is a real consequence and a real toll. And it's hard to predict who it's going to affect. Um, you know, I can give you these general numbers about older and underlying health conditions and congregate settings, but we've lost 20 year olds in the state. The country's lost kids. Um, we see people post COVID who, you know, have a big heart attack, have a big stroke because it can cause clots. Um, you know, if you have natural, if you get the natural infection, it's a little bit like a choose your own adventure response for your immune system. And you're not really sure how it's going to respond. And some do really well and some really don't. But the vaccine is kind of just giving you the key uh, to getting to an immune response without the whole choose your adventure um, mishaps that can happen. So um, I think that's a big thing. I also hear infertility. There's no data for infertility uh, challenges. Many people actually got pregnant in the trials. If you look at it, um, people were very human during the trials. Uh, one person got struck by lightning in a separate trial. You know, things can happen. I mean, humans got vaccinated and human things happened to humans during this time. So, you know, people had car accidents and people got, you know, there was a homicide in one of the, like there's all sorts of things that happen. It doesn't mean the vaccine caused these things. Um, and lots of people got pregnant during the trials. There's no uh, evidence that crosses the placenta. Um, it doesn't change the baby's DNA. Um, pregnancy has not been super well studied, but the major groups that talk about uh, like ACOG, um, it really say it's a risk benefit, talk to your provider. And I will tell you healthcare providers who are pregnant uh, have been getting vaccinated quickly because they're at higher risk for complication. Um, so I guess those are the other ones. I guess the last major hesitation I hear is it's gonna change my DNA. Um, and as mentioned before, it doesn't go into your DNA. It's incredibly, um, it's a protein that falls apart pretty quickly. So it's not something that lasts around. It doesn't cross the blood brain barrier uh, and it, it doesn't change your DNA. And there's no microchip. Uh, so uh, <laughs> in case that came up. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that one a couple of times. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, no, man, you'll see how small the vial is. And I sometimes joke that like, if you've ever worked in the hospital and you see how hard it is to get one IT system to talk to another, you'll understand why <laughs> like, it's impossible. Like that's, um, yeah, there's no microchip. That's just, just vaccine. Yeah. And I'll even say like, I had COVID back in September and I had a mild case, but I still am like feeling the repercussions of it. I still don't have my full taste and smell back. So even for people who think, well, I might just have a mild case if I get it, you know, there, even if you do, there can still be long lasting effects. So it's definitely worth it to get vaccinated and wear your mask and do all those safety precautions to avoid getting it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Cause I don't think people realize, I think they look at hospitalizations and death 
but there's a lot of people in your age group who, and in other age groups as well, who lost a taste and sense of smell, a heart attack, like I said, stroke, fatigued, palpitations, not feel like themselves. Um, and that can impact your life, your work, all those other things as well. And we want people to be healthy and well moving forward. <laughs> Definitely. We'll be right back. Even though all of us at Atme have been working from home during the pandemic, we are still looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska and interested in joining Atme, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Danielle's interview with Dr. Ann Zink. So kind of changing the topic a little bit. Um, it's been quite a few months since we last chatted. Um, where is Alaska at right now with how COVID is in the state? I know we just surpassed 47,000 cases total, um, but how are we doing? Yeah, 47,000, isn't that crazy? Um, we are, we're doing okay, honestly, in the bigger picture. Um, so we had a pretty big surge and it definitely stretched our hospital capacity. I don't think our hospital capacity, would I ever described as systemically overrun. There were parts of the system that became uh, overrun and we had to, you know, transfer patients and move oxygen and, and do things like that. Um, but really, I got asked on a town hall yesterday, you know, why are we doing okay? And I keep saying it's Alaskans. Like there was a call to action mid-November and Alaskans responded. They separated, they wore masks and they pushed the numbers down. And it's all of those individual actions uh, make a difference. Uh, so right now we're at a much better place than we were. Um, our percent positivity has gone down. Uh, we've had a decline in cases. I've been coming a little bit more anxious in the last week. We've kind of plateaued a bit and our percent positivity is starting to creep up and we're getting a lot of people coming back from travel and some of those are sick and you know getting together with family. So I think we're at a real vulnerable time right now. We don't have a lot of vaccine out uh, and we have a lot of fatigue and you know the shininess of the holiday seasons is over um, and people are gathering and it's um, on our, those numbers are starting, just barely starting to show it. So I'm hoping that we can all rally that this is maybe a post-travel bump and a post-holiday bump and that we're identifying those cases before they really become big spreads. So again, getting people tested after you travel, if you did gather over the holidays, getting tested afterwards. Um, there's a lot of asymptomatic cases and we're really trying to increase testing you know, prior to going to school. If you're a restaurant worker getting tested on a regular basis, like if I was a waitress, I would get tested once a week. I would just, I would be tested. I would be exposed even with a mask on, on a regular basis. And so really encouraging those who are working in grocery stores. If you're working fast food, if you're working restaurant, if you're, and if you're in college, like, you know, getting tested regularly helps us to identify those cases early and then minimizes it being a big outbreak and spread. So I think, unfortunately, I think people are just like, oh, I'll just wait for the vaccine. Uh, but that that's not gonna be enough for the next couple of months. We really need people to, to help with these other, these other mitigation tools. 
Right. Yeah. I was going to say like the holidays is a big time for you know parties and coming together. And we do have kind of a little bit increased in test positivity. Do you think that is a result of the holiday gatherings and that, you know, we're starting to see that? What do you guys expect to see in the next coming weeks? I think it's a little bit hard to know. I mean, there was decreased testing over the holidays as well. And so like, were we just getting reports in that were positive, but not all the negatives? And so was that it? Or are we really seeing an increase? But now the fact that the cases are starting to plateau and slightly increase makes us concerned. You usually see percent positivity increase and then cases increase. We always, like every time when we start to, our numbers come down, people stop testing. We see our testing numbers decrease. And then we start to see percent positivity increase. And then we see cases increase. And then we see hospitalizations increase. And then we see desk increase. And for the past probably four weeks, we've seen a decrease in testing. And that's been concerning. So we've been like, okay, we really need people to get tested. And unfortunately, I think that that's now resulting in a bump in these other two. So unfortunately, I think we're starting to head in the wrong direction and it will be what we can collectively do as Alaskans to push that down. You know, get arguments about again, vaccine while well, the elders are gonna get vaccinated. Well, it's gonna take a bit to get there. As you mentioned, that's not just it. And it probably takes four to five weeks to develop immunity as well. And so it takes longer than some other immunizations to get immunity and even more reason to we've just, you know, January and February can be hard months in the state. Uh, they can be long and cold and they could be hard for COVID. And so it's really what we do in this next couple of months is going to determine our future. I don't want to end up like Southern California right now, treating people in parking lots and hospitals overwhelmed and running out of oxygen. Um, so we're, we're okay right now, but it really depends on what Alaskans do. So I know in our last interview, we kind of talked about how a lot of the spread wasn't necessarily always due to mass gatherings and big parties as people expect or travel, but kind of maybe more small gatherings where you have people outside your social circle, you relax, you don't wear your mask. Is that still kind of a primary way that public health officials are seeing the virus spread? Primarily, I would say that we've had an increase in travel associated, you know, people going down to the lower 48. Um, and we've seen that in the past when the lower 48 surges, it takes a bit, but then we start to surge as well. And so um, so we're starting to see a, a bit of an uptake there. And again, um, you know, this is hard and this is long. I think that's why we're starting. We're not saying like, don't travel. We're like, minimize your travel. And if you have to travel, do it responsibly, wear a mask, keep distance, test beforehand, and then don't interact with anyone for at least seven days and get tested after, you know, do the steps you need to make sure that you don't spread it. But we have tools. We buckle up when we get in the car. And so, you know, take your safety precautions when you fly or travel as well to really minimize the risk. So, um, yeah, I think we're seeing a, an uptake in that and, and some more, more and more stories of family gatherings over the holidays where now multiple people in the family are starting to test positive. So I think it's a little before it was these smaller interactions and it was spreading everywhere. I think right now it's a bit more travel and family gatherings for holidays. Um, and then you kind of mentioned back um, a little bit ago about like getting tested regularly, especially if you're in high contact areas, like if you go to college or if you're a restaurant worker. Um, and I know a lot of universities, when they reopened, they did like surveillance testing where they tested like random portions of the student population to detect those asymptomatic cases. Um, what role do you think um, surveillance testing and screening testing is going to be playing going forward? Is that something that people should be doing a lot more now? Um, now that you know asymptomatic cases seem to be the primary driver right now. Absolutely, this is the time. I mean, clearly we want symptomatic people to be tested first, but we've got capacity to do more testing for sure. And we need people to get tested. And that surveillance testing 
you know, so if you work as a waitress in a restaurant, if you get tested, it just, it will help protect all of your colleagues, your family, like, you know, it really helps. It keeps your business open because now not everyone in your business has COVID. Um, just you have it and you'll be able to keep it or just your colleague has it. And so having them get tested regularly is super, super important. Um, so what we've been messaging is at least once a week uh, to get tested. So uh, in places with high transmission, ideally it would be twice a week. And so put it in part of your schedule, you know, and maybe your shift ends at three on Friday and you just plan on driving through one of the, you know, testing sites in your local community after your shift on that same time, just put it in your schedule, make it a part of you, put on a, you know, uniform <laughs> and get your test once a week. We're trying to encourage businesses to make it a part of it. We're trying to encourage schools to make it a part of it, but it's hard. Um, you know, some want to do it. Some don't want to do it. Some people really push back for different reasons, but um, the thing that young people can do now besides these things is they could do regular surveillance testing if they're exposed to the public on a regular basis. So that would help a lot. And my university, we didn't have any of that. And now coming into this semester, we're at least requiring entry testing for people who live on campus. So that's a little bit better. Um, so hopefully but you can see what happened like when you didn't and then did, you know, like when you don't, I mean, knowledge is power. If you don't know, you don't know. And if you feel fine, then, you know, it's hard to act any differently. I mean, a positive test is behavior changing. <laughs> people stay away from others when they have a positive test and that's great. It helps to slow the spread. But if you don't know, you can't slow it down. I'm always amazed at how many times I get from travelers and others who are like, I tested the airport because I was required. I would have never known that this was positive, but I didn't go visit my parents afterwards because of it. And I didn't do X, Y, or Z because of it. And so that's, it, it empowers you to protect those that you love. Right. And when you're asymptomatic, you're like, you're very asymptomatic. Like you do not know. I feel like that's something people don't realize, like you feel fine. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's hard to explain that, right? Like, how can a disease be something asymptomatic? Like, what does that look like? But, you know, there's lots of diseases. I think we talked about like polio before 94% of people with polio, totally asymptomatic um, until it spreads. And then, you know, gets a kid who then becomes, you know, paralyzed and can't breathe and needs an iron lung. So same thing here. You know, we have particularly younger people and they tend to be very, very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic and are living their lives as they should. But live it safely so you don't spread it to others. So get tested. Exactly. Yes, definitely encouraging that to all the young people. Yeah. Um, so Anchorage has come out of its more recent lockdown and has reopened restaurants and bars and some other things um, have allowed increased capacity. So how can people still go to restaurants and go to activities and be COVID conscious and safe? Or is that even possible to do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's challenging um, because when you don't have a mask and you're around others, it's a, just a high risk environment in general. Um, so I, it's um it's not easy. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm really excited to get my hair cut, but I still have no plans to go to a restaurant <laughs> um, in that space just because there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of masks off uh, still for for some time. I think that will change as things get better, but I think I just really huge kudos to the restaurants and bars who have figured out takeout and delivery options. Um, and pick up. I mean, I've, I've personally really, like, there's been some great ones where I'm like, oh, they never used to do that now. And now I can like take out or buy that uh, from my local small business uh, that I love and want to support. And I want them to thrive. And I want to go back into that restaurant later. So um, I think if the staff can be doing it, I will also, again, we mentioned earlier about how many people don't go to things necessarily because they're not well done. And so if businesses can do it well, I think there's a whole group of people who will also support them as well. So, you know, can't tell you how many coffee shops I've driven up to and they don't have a mask on. And I'm like, 
guess I'm not getting coffee there today. <laughs> like, even that's still pretty low risk for that takeout coffee. Um, you know, I don't want those employees getting sick and I want to spend my money where I'm going to support someone who's going to help protect their employees and keep them safe. So um, even if you're working, if you're working a waitress, uh, you know, having a mask on while you're actually doing it. Um, for the bars, having people sit down, not all gather up together, having people spaced out, doing it outside uh, is going to help a lot as well. So we've seen a lot of those things that have made a big difference. And, um, you know, we're Alaskans, we're tough. We can have a, you know, bring an extra blanket and uh, go sit outside and go, you know, be six feet apart from your friends and sit around a fire and enjoy a beer. Like there's ways to support your local businesses and be connected uh, to others without spreading COVID. And as you said, like the winter months, you know, the, the nice holidays that get us through, you know, November and December over and January and February can be particularly hard and people are getting really kind of exhausted. I think mm -hmm. if we didn't have pandemic fatigue before, we definitely have it now. What do you, what do you, what advice do you have for people who are just kind of, I don't want to wear my mask anymore. I'm kind of done doing this. Um, what kind of encouragement or way to rejuvenate themselves? Yeah, I hear that a lot. I have a patient the other day and she's like, I'm just done with this. And I was like, I'm here. Yeah, I'm done with it too. But unfortunately, it's not done with us. You know, I, I think it really depends on the person. I've been saying a lot on like, let's do it for our kids for the next couple months. Um, we've had a lot of kids who haven't been able to be in school for a long time. And them being particularly younger kids in school makes a difference for their long-term education. And I worry a lot about that and what that means for their long-term economic health, their long-term social health, like the development. And it's really hard to have schools open when your teachers are sick or your teachers are in quarantine or isolation. But it's really easy to have them open, distanced and masked and safely, or go with those mitigation if you don't have a lot of COVID spreading. So we have not prioritized our kids and we have not had them in school. We've seen country after country do that differently than us. Let's do this for our kids. Like, let's push these numbers down. We can do it for them for a couple more months. You can wear your mask so your little brother and sister can go to school and have their teacher be healthy in there. And so I think if we can do that for them, we can keep schools open and keep them safe and keep teachers working while we're vaccinating our elders. Uh, and that will just make the whole process much, much easier. So at least for me, that's really my focus for the next two months is Let's keep our numbers down. We're, we're projecting our elders in other ways, but let's, let's do it for our kids. Definitely. Yeah. That's a, that's a good goal to have. I know um, when I was just able to even go to an, one in-person class or a couple in-person classes on my campus, I was like, this is so nice just being <laughs> able to like be in a classroom. And of course I'm like an adult, so it's not as paramount for me to be with my teacher. Um, but even for people who get to go into their offices and just, even if they're in their office alone or in their cubicle alone, um, not having to work at home and be at home all the time, I know can be really just a relief and even something exciting to do a different change of pace. So that's a good goal to have. Yeah. And it's not totally black and white, right? But it's, you know, instead of going to the bar on Saturday, like again, have a beer with your friends outside distance or go for a run separately with them or connect some other way. I mean, that connection is human and it's important. So do it, but do it safely so that kids and others that don't have the same opportunity to do it can do it. And so for those who've already had COVID like myself, there's a lot of talk about this 90 day period of immunity. Um, could you kind of talk about that and what that really means in regards to people who have already had it? And if your 90 day period is up, what does that mean? And do rules still apply to you for, do you need to wear your mask as much? All that stuff, how does, how does that factor in? 
Yeah, so we do think immunity lasts probably at least 90 days. Um, and we do see occasionally cases before 90 days, but they're very rare. Um, there's some talk of how much longer does it last? Does it last more like 120 days and what that looks like? It's clearly a little bit different based on how severe people's illness was and people's different immune responses in general. Um, so yes, some rules don't apply in that 90 days. So you don't need to have travel testing in that 90 days. You don't need to have pre-procedural testing in those 90 days. Um, you, it's very unlikely that you would get the virus and spread it to others during that time. And so you're, you're a lower likelihood. We don't have great data on that, but the little bit that we see, we just aren't picking up samples where people have virus in their nose during that time. Masking's hard just because, um, you know, it's, uh, you go into a restaurant or a place like, I had it. And you have this whole conversation. Um, so in general, like, you know, masking to just continue to like help minimize social conflict. Um, uh, along those lines, but but the data behind it is is less so for that 90 day period. And again, as we get more people vaccinated, hopefully we have less and less people needing to wear masks and distancing all these other things uh, moving forward. So it's just easier to live life. If it lasts longer, uh, again, we're trying to figure that out. We do still recommend getting vaccinated if you've had COVID. And um, we do say you can consider waiting your 90 day period. So, you know, an elder just is recovering from COVID. Um, there's no huge rush for them to get vaccinated right away. They could wait, you know, that 90 day period. Uh, but we do think that the immunity from the vaccine lasts longer than the immunity from natural infection. And that's not uncommon for vaccines. They're designed to make your immune system last longer. And so that's part of the reason why we still encourage vaccination. Yeah, so I'm out of my 90 day period. Um, yeah. where I had COVID a while ago. So how does that affect, I guess, like my priority in getting the vaccine? I know I'm young, so I'm like probably at the bottom of the totem pole, but. You're down there, yeah, sorry about that. Um, but so keep distancing masking, you'll, you'll get there eventually. Um, but yeah, anyone who's passed their 90 days, we kind of treat like starting over again, like they never had it. Yeah, so. Wow. Okay, so yeah. that's good to know. I mean, I have been still, you know, wearing my mask and social distancing, but I do think for some young people, there is this idea that I'm invincible. I've had COVID, I'm good to go. Um, and so that is not, not the mentality people should be having. No, particularly after that 90 days. I mean, there's a chance it might extend outward, but we're looking at more data on that. So it's probably not a black or white. It's probably not like your immune system turns off at 90 days. It probably gradually decreases and it's probably different from each person, but the recommendations right now really stop at 90 days. And, um, yeah, unfortunately you're not invincible. Although I think every 20 year old, I thought that when I was 20, so. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a qu quite common for us to think that nothing bad can ever happen to us. Right, I think it's genetically programmed. And yeah, probably. <laughs> um, and so kind of getting on to like back to normal life, is that something that is even gonna be possible? Are we ever gonna get back to a pre-COVID way of being, do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, that question is always interesting to me because I think we always respond uh, and change and grow and learn. You know, like I hope that I, I mean, I know a lot more about you know coronaviruses than I did at the beginning of this, and this is that's not going to go away, right? Like there are things that we've learned in many many ways. We fly differently after 9/11. I think we will have different um, ways that we interact post COVID because we learned a lot. We saw flu essentially disappear. We saw influenza, or excuse me, RSV for kiddos in particularly in the YK region essentially go right away. Those are other respiratory borne droplet um, viruses that we saw a decrease. So for example, in healthcare, working in the emergency department, particularly during flu season, 
I always see wearing a mask. Um, I think that will help protect me. I mean, I have not gotten a cold this entire year. <laughs> um, and um, I think that will help protect me and it will likely help my patients as well. So I think there will be things like that um, that will change. I think things like ventilation to make sure that there's good ventilation in schools and in restaurants and in buildings are going to be important regardless, just like we know that, you know, refrigeration of meats is important. Like we learn about bacteria and viruses and we respond and we follow through so that we can have safe and normal ways. Getting together and going to restaurants and being in school, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that that's all like that's we're human. That's all as important part of who we are and what needs to happen. So I think all of that in many places is already starting to come back to some degree. Um, and I think that will happen more and more as we move forward. But um, yeah, I think it'll be a mix of things. We'll, and hopefully we can learn from this about how connected we are how much I feel like when you empower a community to control its own health, they are oftentimes stronger together and how much we really do need to work together. And just like you all helping to call uh, seniors uh, <laughs> right now, it, it makes a difference for their health. And I think if we can really build on that sense of connection and community uh, for our overall collective health, I think that we will be healthier and, and, and better off, um, which makes us stronger. It makes us more resilient. Uh, it makes our economies flourish more, um, our country stronger. Um, both economically as well as militarily when we've got people who are healthy and well and, and mentally and physically succeeding. So um, I don't know, I think we just keep building towards that. Awesome. Well, that covers about everything for me. Did you have anything that you really wanted to touch on or thought I should have asked or anything like that? No, you always ask great questions. So <laughs> thanks Thank for uh, the time and thanks for the call to action to, you know, get people to help, you know, ours, our elders over 65 to go get vaccinated and to do this for the kids, keep up the hard work for another couple months um, so that we can, you know, our brothers and our sisters and our kids and <laughs> be able to be in school and in, in, in person um, so that we can keep moving forward together. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for the time. I know you have a very busy schedule. Um, yeah. yeah, I always appreciate talking to you. Yep, have a good day. Thanks. You Bye. Bye. That was at me senior producer, Danielle Duclos, speaking with Dr. Ann Zink, Alaska's Chief Medical Officer. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music by Kendrick Whiteman. Stay tuned for more stories from quarantined youth. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Alaska Press Club, John O'Hara, and James McCoy. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help us by subscribing to rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. 
There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Riley Taylor. Thanks for listening. Remember, think like zinc, stay safe out there, and we'll get through this together.